Welcome to the Nonprofit Growth Show, presented by Nonprofit Megaphone, the podcast where we highlight nonprofit leaders in the trenches who share the strategies and tactics they use to grow their organizations and make a difference each day. As we like to say, if you want to be discouraged by a general sense of decay, read the news. But if you want to be inspired by concrete stories of growth, talk to a nonprofit. Here's to the modern day superheroes, the nonprofit leaders. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. We're here with Jill Kanishima. She is the Director of Development and Communications at East Bay Asian Local Development Corporation, or IBALTSI, uh, as they call it. Jill, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And as is our tradition here, we can jump right into the thick of things. I was wondering if you could tell us a story about a climactic or dramatic or exciting moment that has happened in your development career. We'd love for you to take us back to that and tell us how it all worked out. Sure. Um, so I've been a fundraiser in the nonprofit field for about 13 years. But back when I started, maybe just a year or so into my fundraising journey, um, I was working at a nonprofit that worked with homeless youth. And I started and we started a capital campaign basically at the same time. Um, at that time, I didn't even know what a capital campaign really was. Um, but nevertheless, there I was and we're going to make make it work. Um, so I remember it was about a year or so into this job and we had been cultivating a donor for a little bit, sharing our plans about this capital campaign, which was basically to make our seasonal shelter into a year round one. Um, we had found a building that we wanted to purchase and renovate and just needed the donors. So we had someone on the decks as a potential a prospect donor, um, and they showed some interest, and they were just kind of like a little lukewarm about it, but they were kind of interested. So, you know, keep in touch with us. Keep us in the loop on how things develop. Um, weeks passed, months passed. We kept on pinging them. Oh, you want to come on out? You want to see this building that we're kind of interested in? Oh, yeah, like we'll make that happen at some point. But general, it was just kind of moving along slowly. Um, finally, um, we hear back from under like, OK, I think we're ready to come out and see the space that you guys are looking at. Um, can we meet on day X? Day X, of course, happened to be the director of development is out of town. Um, and me, the lowly little development associate at the time, was coming back from Thailand like eight hours before, like flying in midnight wow. before. And I knew I was going to be super jet lagged, but who else was going to be able to show these guys this space? So I called my boss, who, like I said, was out of town. And he was like, you, you just got to do that tour. I, I know that like this isn't your normal job. Normally I'm dealing with like razor's edge and answering phone calls and dealing with volunteers, but you got to do it. So here I was, I was like, I think I was like 25 or something. Like I said, super jet lagged. And I met these folks. There was three extremely tall men in business suits there at 8 a.m. sharp. Me kind of bleary eyed, kind of like, what the heck have I gotten myself into? <laughs> but nevertheless, um, I gave them a tour of this space, which was um, interestingly, the former home of Governor Jerry Brown. It was a very strange space, actually. And I was like, I can't believe Jerry Brown lived in here. But nevertheless, um, 
took them in, showed them every nook and cranny, told them weird stories about Jerry Brown, but mostly, you know, the story of what this shelter would do for the community. Um, they seemed like they were much more interested after the tour, being able to like kind of envision the space. And long story short is they ended up being um, a six-figure donor to the capital campaign. Wow. Um, and it was very exciting. Um, and I will never forget what that was like. That is so exciting. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. And maybe yeah. if we zoom back a little bit, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear the journey that has brought you to where you are today. Sure. Um, so like many of my fellow fundraisers, um, I did not grow up thinking, hey, I'm going to be a fundraiser when I grow up. Um, but I went to college and I studied journalism and communications. Um, and like many people in those types of majors, like, oh, now what do I do with myself? Um, but at the same time, I was 22 and it was a really tough economy at the time, but I was still pretty bright eyed and hopeful about things, but I decided to go abroad for a while. I went to the Dominican Republic for a year of my life and I taught middle school. Um, and when I came back, because I was like, oh, I guess I should adult a little bit more. I think I have some student loans that I need to pay. Um, I came back to the Bay Area, which is also where I went to school um, and took a marketing position. Needless to say, the, the juxtaposition of living in the Dominican Republic on $4 a day And then coming back to the Bay Area where my biggest client was Adobe was, it was jarring to say the least. Um, I was very lucky to have a friend who was um, a recruiter. And I remember calling her up and being like, what have I done? (laughs) I I do not know what to do with myself. Um, This whole like marketing thing, you know, it, it does, it does not make me tick. It does not make me feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. Um, And she told me, maybe you should look into fundraising. Um, I had never thought about it ever in my life, even though looking back on it, I fundraised in many capacities before I officially became a fundraiser. But um, I started applying to entry level jobs in the fundraising world. I think I applied for about like 10, 15 development assistant type jobs from all kinds of nonprofits in the Bay Area. And thankfully, the one with the homeless organization that I mentioned earlier um, took me on and I just never looked back. I loved it. Incredible. That is such a fun journey through a wide variety of sort of Mm -hmm. different experiences, which you probably get to apply in different portions in your work today. Is there a story you yeah, is there a story you could tell us about Ibaldi um, and um, maybe a story that captures in your mind the difference that the nonprofit is trying to make in the world? Sure. So Ibaldi is a nearly forty-five-year-old organization in Oakland, California, um, and it started with the vision of providing a healthy neighborhood to anyone who chooses and wants one, and we believe everyone deserves one. And the way that started off was by creating a nonprofit hub in the Chinatown of Oakland, California. This was during a time where a lot of freeways were coming in. You saw a lot of displacement starting to happen, especially in certain ethnic neighborhoods. And so there was this warehouse, an old warehouse that was abandoned. um, And a handful of students from UC Berkeley, 
neighboring activists and community members came together to purchase that building and refurbish it into what is now called the Asian Resource Center. Um, this was way before the days of co-working as we know it, but in some ways I think of it as like early co-working. Um, it's a beautiful old building and now it's full of several community serving nonprofits in Chinatown. It continues to be a real beacon um, in that community. Um, but that was about 45 years ago. Um, so fast forward to about 2013, um, Alameda County, which is the county where Oakland is in, um, released some research and they found that kids living in the flatlands of Oakland versus those in the more affluent neighborhoods of Oakland had a 14-year age expectancy discrepancy. 14 years. And this is a matter of about three miles or something like that. Um, And this was shocking to much of the community. So when I talk about healthy neighborhoods, this is when it really hit home. If there's two kids who live in the same city, just three miles apart, have such different health outcomes, we really need to think about what we do differently. So what started off as you know, this community-based work turned into affordable housing, and now we do affordable housing and a whole bunch of what's considered collective impact work. Um, and collective impact is a very complicated thing. But long story short is we're in about three neighborhoods in Oakland where we really focus our activity with neighboring residents and institutions to really move the needle on certain issues that we know affect the health of our neighbors. Um, and it's typically pretty underserved neighborhoods. So we are known for our housing work and creating spaces for nonprofit, uh, small businesses and other community serving organizations, but we also build and preserve affordable housing here in the Bay Area, which is a near impossibility. And we do this collective impact work. Um, And I think when people think about affordable housing, they just think about the building. But I love that we are thinking about this very holistically And I think that's how we're making a difference. And that's how we're really elevating the story of what affordable housing, what community development can look like. Um, And because the Bay Area is at such such a forefront for what it could look like to have a healthy community, I think that we could really spread um, a great message about what can actually be done when we think expansively and think big about a community and a neighborhood for anyone and everyone to take part in. Absolutely. That makes sense. It's a no, really complicated right. story, really, but I'm, I, I could talk about it for like hours. <laughs> Absolutely. It's impressive. And then if we drill into some of your work in development and fundraising, is there a tactic or strategy that you've found to be particularly effective that others and maybe similar roles across the country might benefit from experimenting with as well? You know, it's really interesting. I mean, I think with fundraising, it is really easy to get into the tactics that we have all learned about. But what I always say, like the first thing I'll ever do at any organization I'm working with is just listen. Um, I really like to come into an organization and do a bit of a listening tour at first. Um, And I'm talking about with all kinds of stakeholders. There are our clients, and in our case, you know, we have residents in our buildings, but I also want to listen and hear from every department. I want to hear from our volunteers. 
I want to hear from our board members. I want to hear from our staff. I want to hear from our neighbors and so on and so on and so on. Once I can get that kind of data, that's just, that's when I can start thinking about tactics. But just the space for people to talk and for me to listen, I think is so powerful. We are so used to being told what to do in so many different ways all day, every day, that just the act of being listened to, I think is an extremely powerful one. And if we're talking about donors, especially, you know, it's like, here's someone that's going to give of themselves. Um, We are asking something of them. At very least, we can give them the space and the respect to hear what brings them there. Um, No one wants to be treated like an ATM including myself. But most people do like to talk about themselves and why they're there. Um, Every single donor and every single supporter I've ever spoken to has a really personal story behind why they're involved. And a lot of them don't have that chance to share why. They're used to being asked, hey, can you give me the end of year donation that you always give? That space, I think, is the most valuable tool that any development professional could ever use. Absolutely. We can now jump into our pro-con discussion, which is always very entertaining. So the topic Mm -hmm. that we've selected for today is we often hear the advice, just do social media. And the question is, does that help or is that the right way to think about it? So would you like to take the side that just do social media is, in fact, the way to go? or that, um, no, it's not. And that actually, that advice can be counterproductive. What do you think? Oh, I think it can be very counterproductive. Um, Social media can be a really amazing tool for any nonprofit, for sure. Um, But not if you don't do it well. And well, I will say, is very personal and depending on the capacity of an organization. Um, I have heard that so many times, you know, just do social media. But one, there is a huge array of tools in social media. Are we talking about Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? I mean, it obviously goes on and on. And I think you really have to, one, know your audience. I know that my donor supporter base is slightly older. Um, They are not the Instagram uh, generation. They are more Facebook and there are things that you can kind of look up about, like who are the demographics using what type of tool. So because I know my donor base is a little bit older, they're a little bit more into Facebook. Some of them are like, yeah, I like Twitter, but the vast majority are more of like the Facebook generation. So knowing that I think is really important. But then once you choose whichever tools you want to use, and it could just be one tool, um, being able to respond to your social media is also the other part of it that's super important. Just to be able to put stuff on social media is one thing, but it is the lost opportunity if you do not engage with it. For example, our gener- our demographics that we're working with in our donor b- database is a group of people that will actually message us questions on Facebook. If you do not pay attention to your messages on Facebook and you just have this stockpile of folks who are just asking you all these different types of questions about the content you posted, you are missing out on the power of this tool. 
So being ready to choose a tool and then know how to engage with the folks who are engaging with your tool is as important as actually doing something like social media. Don't don't have asset is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's really important that. to know how to engage with your donor day, your donors if you choose a specific tool. So. Absolutely. So now I'll try and argue against that, play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree that um, organizations, basically in the day and age that we live in, that every organization has to be on social media to a certain degree? And isn't there a risk where if you are not at least like posting something, maybe it's every two weeks, and even if no one engages with it, like fine, doesn't it at least, isn't that minimum at least necessary to show the world that you are still alive as an organization? I feel like I will oftentimes see nonprofits that are doing great work and have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram accounts, but their most recent post is, you know, six months ago. And it begs mm-hmm. the question, has this organization closed? Do they still right. exist? What's going on there? And is that maybe what people are referring to when they say, like, just do social media just so that people know you're alive, almost like a heartbeat? Right. No, I think that's a great point. And I think it's a great segue into what another point is. Assuming you do choose a tool to use, I think it's more important to think about regular content then, you know, like, oh, you tweet like every day for two weeks and then you go silent. Um, so what I've told, especially folks who have like really tiny teams where you have like one person who's doing everything, use a tool like Hootsuite that you can kind of like gear up a whole bunch of content in one go and then kind of space it out regularly over as much time as you need. Um, I've certainly worked with people like that and teams like that where it's like, yeah, we have a director of development and a development associate and that's it. Um, So we just don't have much capacity to engage on social media. And I think that's fine. But there are tools out there that can allow you to schedule and, you know, gear up a whole bunch of content in one go so that you can space that at least show that you are alive. (laughs) Certainly. Okay, I love it. We can jump into some rapid fire questions. I was okay. wondering if you could describe yourself in only one word. What would you say and why? I will say that I'm curious. I love it. And then talk to us about that. I have a long story about that. And if um you haven't noticed already, I think uh, storytelling is a really powerful tool for fundraising. So I said curious because when I was a kid, I was endlessly curious and nosy about, God knows, too many things. Um, And one of the stories that my parents like to share with me is that I would go into their friends' houses and start poking around their houses, much to their dismay. Be like, oh God, where did Jill go? They find me in like a master bedroom somewhere. And so after a while, there was a lot of family members used to start, they started calling me Jill with a nose problem because I was so nosy. Um, (laughs) It wasn't just that I was like poking around in their personal spaces. It was also just like that endless why questions. What's that? Who who is that? It was like just running down like all the who, what, where, when, why type questions. Um, to the point where I think people are just kind of like exhausted, like, oh, God, here comes Jill. She's going to have all these questions for me. But um, 
I do think that curiosity is a lot of what has driven me to do what I do. Um, it certainly is a big part of why I chose journalism and communications as majors in college. Um, but it also drives me a lot in the work that I do from day to day, um, which is to better understand my constituency so that I can better engage them and hopefully get them more involved and to give more in the organizations I work for. Beautiful. Is there an exciting shift that you're seeing taking place in the nonprofit world today that you think is really positive? So being in the Bay Area, I think one of the things that I'm seeing as an exciting shift, and I only mention the Bay Area because that's where I live, so I can't speak to the rest of the country or world, um, but I'm really um, excited by seeing nonprofits blend together with different types of mindsets, fields. Um, so like I, I'm seeing like tech and nonprofit come together, for example. Um, I was recently at the Lean Startup Conference and they have a social impact track now because there's a lot of nonprofits out there who are seeing, I can take the best of tech and I can take the best of nonprofit work and kind of blend them together into this lean, mean, bold organization that is taking on some really big stuff. Um, I met someone there who his whole thing was like, I want people to be able to detect that they have a mosquito-borne disease as easily as someone finding out if they're pregnant. Um, and his argument was that right now, depending on where you live, especially if you're in a country that has a lot of mosquito-borne diseases, it can be really hard to find out if you have a mosquito-borne disease you have to actually go to like a hospital. And sometimes it's too late. What if you could go to like the drugstore and pick up a test and swab the inside of your mouth and be like, oh, look, I have dengue and then get yourself to a hospital. So I think that's actually a really exciting shift. And maybe I don't think everyone's going to go that way, obviously, but it's exciting to see what that could bring about in the sector. Cool. Continuing on that note, are there people or organizations that have been inspirational or really helpful to you as you've become more and more experienced in the nonprofit development world that you maybe want to give sort of a shout out to? Sure. I mean, there's really so many. Um, and it's hard, like, even when I was just, I mean, there's so many nonprofits that I give to myself, and there's so many that I just look to as like amazing organizations. Um, I, I love to see organizations like Kiva that have been around for a while and are kind of pivoting as time goes on to meet the needs. Um, some an, organiza an organization like that, um, that I think has been pretty well established. They're not like super old, but they're not like super young, but just seeing how they're adapting to what is happening in the world, I think is really great. Um, I also think that there are organizations like, uh, like the, there's this one called Medic Mobile um, that I recently learned about. And it's another good example of an organization that's kind of like taking the best of tech and the best of nonprofit and meshing it for good, um, where they're using the technology of smartphones to help gather data on people who are probably under-resourced when it comes to medicine. Like they might be in like a rural village of India or something like that. Um, but being able to use 
that all that information to better work within a community, to better heal them, or at least treat them um, is amazing. Um, and I think that's really exciting to see. All the while, I think organizations who are just doing the on the ground work, you know, I, they, I recently learned about um, there is a new shelter opening in San Francisco that's really looking to serve the transgender population. Um, obviously, the idea of a shelter has been around forever, but I love that they are thinking about how do we best serve our community, um, even when that means working with a group that has been, you know, I think they just get looped into the LGBTQI population. And I just love that they're kind of expanding that and pushing that a little bit and just being like, hey, this is a real need. Providing a roof over someone's head is probably the most important thing that anyone could ever need. And let's pay attention to this group of people that has not been acknowledged fully when it comes to this work. And I think that's really exciting, too. Certainly. Is there something that you uh, understand now that you didn't appreciate to the same degree five or 10 years ago? In the nonprofit field? Sure. Yeah, specifically. Um, I think what I appreciate time and time again about the sector is that there are such brilliant, passionate people doing such important work. And um, it doesn't, I mean, they're just the most resilient people I've ever met. And it's really easy to look to maybe like health or medicine or tech or tech, whatever it is to be like, you know, like look at these people doing groundbreaking work. But I think so many of my colleagues are probably the most brilliant people I know and doing it with such small amounts of resources and time that it is an amazing thing. And I'm just so very lucky to be a part of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jill, for spending the time with us. Where sure. should people look if they want to learn more about Ibaldsi or if they want to learn more about you and your background and so forth? Sure. So Ibaldsi can be found at ebaldc.org. Um, that's our website. And you can find all of our social media handles off that. Um, and to find me, um, frankly, the easiest way is to just Google my name because all my handles use J.M. Kunishima, which is kind of hard to find. And that's a little bit on purpose. Um, <laughs> but if you search for Jill Kunishima, you'll find me. I'm definitely out there. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Jen. Again, Jill, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Growth Show presented by Nonprofit Megaphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast network. We appreciate your support. Until next time.